happy Friday. Thanks for tuning in to The Hill Talks. I'm Olivia, multimedia editor of The Hilltop, back with your weekly campus news roundup. Today, we'll start with some investigative news, then we'll move to some campus updates and finish off with an interview with a special guest from Goldman Sachs. Let's do it. The Howard University Showtime band director was placed on administrative leave last fall after allegations of physical abuse, sexual harassment, negligence, and inappropriate language towards students in the band. Calvin Washington, who was appointed as the director in 2019 after working in the music department for 28 years, was placed on this paid leave after the dean's office in the College of Fine Arts received a letter on September 19th of last year signed by 70 members of the marching band detailing their concerns about Washington. In the letter, Students alleged instances where Washington put a student in a chokehold, repeatedly called students dumb, and used racial slurs and obscene language with female students. Washington also allegedly commented on students' weight and physical appearance while they were wearing their uniforms. The university responded with an investigation into Washington and a statement noting that band members will not face retaliation for speaking openly about the matter. The Hilltop reached out to Washington via a phone call, however, he declined to comment on the allegations. In Washington's absence, Associate Band Director Michael Fitzhugh has taken on leadership, and on December 16th, the university received a second letter from the band members which outlined their apprehension about Washington returning. The letter said that if Washington returned, members would feel like the progress that the band has made under Fitzhugh's leadership would be jeopardized. The university didn't provide a time frame for when the investigation will be over, and in the meantime, Washington is still a university employee. To read more details, including testimonies from current band members, read the full story online. Now, biology is one of the most popular majors at Howard. But the growing student demand for biology classes is adding pressure on an already understaffed and under-resourced department, according to biology professors and students. Full-time biology professor Fatima Jackson told The Hilltop that an unexpected number of faculty retirements, deaths, and resignations has led the biology department to schedule 15 interviews to fill five full-time professorship positions within the department. She said that between the previous school year and now, Dr. Franklin Ampey, biostatistician, passed away, plant biologist Dr. Mary McKenna retired, and two of her junior colleagues, Dr. Michael Lipscomb and Dr. Michael C. Campbell, resigned to pursue research and work at other universities. A teaching assistant in the biology department also explained to the Hilltop how understaffing has opened up many more full-time teacher assistant positions. They also explained that there is, in their opinion, underfunding for the department, which has led to situations where lab supervisors have needed to spend their own money in order to be able to teach a lesson. Students in the department say that they are feeling the effects of understaffing and a lack of resources, too. The trickle-down effect of these issues is leaving some feeling unprepared for the MCAT, the standardized medical school exam, and ultimately careers in the sciences as a whole. 
To read more about the current state of the biology department, which currently has a thousand students, read the full article online. So today on the Hill Talks, we have a very special guest. As Chief Diversity Officer at Goldman Sachs, she is responsible for ensuring an inclusive environment and fostering diversity in the workforce. And to do so, she draws on her personal background and experience as a native New Yorker, as the granddaughter of Dominican immigrants, and as a first-generation college student. Joining me is Megan Hogan. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. So before we get into kind of your current work at Goldman Sachs, I kind of want to start at the beginning. So tell me about why creating diversity and inclusivity in the workforce is so important to you in the first place. Yeah, sure. So um, as you mentioned, I'm a native New Yorker. I grew up in Flatbush, Brooklyn, and there were so many disparities that were very apparent to me at a young age. Um, And so when I was in my early stages of education, the school that I went to, and and unfortunately still to this date, has very low reading scores. About 17% of the students are reading at grade level. Same thing when we think about the mathematics of those schools, too. Um, And it was very apparent to me that there were significant have and have-nots in New York City. Um, And so that kind of narrative line of really understanding what it means to foster equity was always very important to me because I knew that even my education wasn't up to snuff compared to other people across New York and was important to me whether I was in law school or whether it was community service or whether it's at Goldman Sachs that I needed to do my personal part in making sure that there were more equitable opportunities for people of color. Um, Talk more about kind of the education piece of that. I'm wondering like how um, or when those disparities kind of became apparent to you? And then as you continued in higher education, what were some experiences that you had that went on to inform your DEI work? Yeah, so there was a certain point when I was going to a public school, I had passed what were state exams at quite a high level. And so there were some schools that said, you know, if we offer financial aid to Megan, would she be interested to going to private or an independent school in New York? And so I I went to school starting in third grade at a predominantly white institution on the Upper East Side, and it couldn't be more night and day. Like I would start my day in a low income area in a rent stabilized apartment in Brooklyn. I would travel an hour and 15 minutes up to the Upper um, East Side or the four or five train. And when I would get there, everything from the subways to the streets were cleaner. The buildings were beautiful. There were doormen across Park Avenue and Lexington when I walked around. When I got to the school itself, it felt more secure. It was cleaner. It was brighter. All the books were brand new. There were labs. There were computers. There were safe spaces for students to convene with their teachers. There were tons of after-school activities. Um, And there were really robust um, learning environments that were supported by teachers who were really invested in the students and who had had tenure at the school for 20 plus years. Um, So even when I was eight, I could see that education and those building blocks were so different depending on your income level. And it was the same thing when I went to Yale undergrad. You know, again, I would see the disparity in education. You know, my mom had started school a few years actually before I started college, um, being later in life with her education. And Brooklyn College was a great school, but again, very underinvested in, you know, while Yale has 
billions of dollars in advancement and new technology. Um, and so that investment in education has been so important to my development. Um, and I'm very focused on making sure that there's more opportunities for students, you know, whether it's in early education or whether they decide to come to places like Goldman Sachs um, and think about the opportunities in finance. Yeah. So I'm wondering, um, before we talk you know, more in detail about your work at Goldman Sachs, is there a moment, kind of any point in your life before Goldman Sachs, where like, it just became abundantly clear to you that like I, I personally need to do something about this? Yeah, I think it was probably during the financial crisis in 2008. Um, a lot of companies were starting to fall, like Lehman Brothers, um, but there was definitely disparate impact to communities of color, you know, whether it was the high housing crisis, like how people were not just finding jobs, but how they were maintaining their homes mm-hmm. because of the mortgage crisis as well. And I said, you know, this is a real problem in a city that I grew up in, where people were having to move out of New York City or travel two and a half hours to work in the city, but live somewhere more affordable. I think that's probably the point in time where it became most stark to me. And so I was very fortunate. The law firm that I worked for let me go work at a housing litigation crisis center for six months, getting people back into their apartments, avoiding tenant harassment, making sure that people were foreclosed upon if they owned their homes too. Um, And that probably started my journey to do more pro bono work when I was an attorney and then think about how I could marry intellectual capital that I had built from the schools I went to with the financial capital of big companies and kind of make impact in society at large. So tell me about Goldman Sachs um, and their commitment to diversity. What is that? What does that look like? And how have you seen it evolve over your time? Yeah, what's great about Goldman, you know, it's now the 154th year of Goldman's existence. That's a long time, you know, for any company and definitely for a financial institution. Um, as we can see in the news, you know, some some have not made it or some have been acquired. And so I'm very proud to work at a, a place with that long tenure history. And I think Goldman has always thought about inequity in some way, you know, whether it was the fact that there was a lot of disparity even with religion at a certain point in terms of, you know, Christian versus Jewish people, like even in New York City and how they could find lending and investment, you know, was discussed at Goldman Sachs. Later in time, when it came to the inequity of women being in the workplace, rights to education, working in finance, you know, Goldman was supportive of that. And then certainly in the civil rights era and the movement, there's been long ties to places like Howard and other HBCUs, where many of our senior people have sat on the board of trustees or have had some commitment. And so I think not only has our commitment been consistent over our history in lots of different ways, Um, But it's also been very pragmatic. Like, we're not just about making big statements to talk. Like, we're definitely walking the walk in terms of things when it's our 10,000 small business program, 10,000 women, our 1 million black women initiative. That's literally a 10 with a B, billion dollar investment in the inequities that we see between black women and white men and how to narrow that gap. Um, it's not just about proclamations, but it's about big dollars and it's about the investment of our people at time and, and coaching entrepreneurs and other people in the community. Yeah, that's awesome to hear because I feel like a lot of the times with larger and older institutions too, there's all of this kind of like 
or what people like to call performative kind of activism or performative support um, for DEI. So I'm curious, like, have you ever run into that in other workplaces or even here? And like, how do you um, go about like supporting walking the walk, as you put it? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I was lucky, I think, part of the reason I became an attorney is because lawyers have been at the forefront of fighting for equity, you know, whether it's in the legal field or um, in politics or in government, righting the wrongs of the past with new legislation. And so I've been lucky to work at two places, my former law firm, Wilkie Farr, that devoted a lot of time to pro bono um, and equity efforts, whether it was immigration cases for people seeking asylum whether it was the pro bono where I worked, like I said, during the housing crisis, whether it was you know, fighting for the rights of domestic violence victims. Um, I think, you know, fortunately I've worked for places that have done it right. Where I've seen things go wrong is when people think that simply writing the check is enough. Um, and while financial capital to institutions is important, there needs to be a marrying of the fact that you need people's time. You know, you talk about the concept of time and treasure. The treasure isn't enough. It's great for places to write checks, but more important is the cultivation, relationship building. You know, how are you showing impact? How are you showing up? How are you building one-on-one relationships that foster more engagement and get everyone interested in fighting and advancing equity is more important than just simply, you know, the black square on Instagram um, or writing a donation, you know, to a nonprofit. I, I just don't think that's enough. Yeah. So before um, you started as chief diversity officer, you were head of diversity recruiting, right? right? Um, So tell me about some of your biggest accomplishments in that role. Yeah, I loved recruiting. It's it's one of the best jobs. And Erica Coleman, who is now um, the head of diversity recruiting, she was just saying earlier, it's the opportunity to really sell the firm. Like recruiters do the work, not just because it's their job, but because they love Goldman Sachs too. And so what better job than talking about like why you stay at the institution. Um, And so I really love the opportunity uh, to do that work. And I would have to say two of the biggest things that I've loved were the neurodiversity hiring program that I started when I was there in, in 2019. Very important to me because I have an older son who has special needs. And it was important for me to know I'm just not investing in his personal development, but what are the opportunities my son can have should he direct himself to a career in finance or other opportunities um, within financial services? Um, And so we have really flipped the script on what it means to hire people on the spectrum with ADHD um, or other neurodivergent qualities um, because there is such a big gap in their employability. And then the other thing I've loved is um, obviously the HBC Market Madness Program. Like it's not only this $25 million commitment, like I said, the check wasn't enough, but we have, you know, each year between 50 and 75 coaches working one-to-one with students over 14 weeks, teaching them finance fundamentals, teaching them about uh, demystifying what it means to work in finance at Goldman Sachs, showing them black professionals who started from analysts and made it all the way to a partner, like Nicole Cohen Ross, who went to, to Hampton. Like, we have talented HBCU alums. And I think people don't think of that when they think of Goldman Sachs. So it's important for us to keep pointing out what we're doing in this space and showing up on campuses like this to make it be known that Goldman is an employer choice for Black talent. Yeah, so I was actually going to ask about the Market Madness program next. Um, 
why target HBCUs specifically? Like, what is unique about them and how are they um, unique in the way that they will go on to contribute to economic growth? Yeah, it's a great question. And so even for the people who might have heard of the Howards and the Morehouses and the Spellmans, what is still confusing, because I, I talk a lot with our European colleagues, so like it seems so odd to us that if we're trying to advance equity, that you still have schools that are predominantly of one group. Like the concept of women, all women's colleges and HBCUs are very foreign to them. And I say it's because you really have to think about the legacy of, of slavery and history and exclusion, why these institutions were created and how they are so excellent in fostering safe spaces for people to thrive. And so I think what I see out of HBCUs is such a level of confidence from the students. Like not only are they getting a great education, um, but because they've been in this environment, you know, they are be able to translate what they've learned show up in lots of different places with unique ideas and perspectives um, and be really not just fluent in the conversation, but really confident in how they exude themselves, which I think is really important because communication and showing up authentically is the only way you can really drive innovation and creativity. So that's what I see as like the competitive advantage to HBCUs. The students that come out of these institutions, they're not covering who they are. They don't show up and say, you know, I don't, I don't know if showing up this way is appropriate. And therefore, all of their brain and space is used up really focusing on the work, which is what we need people to do when it comes to creativity and covering our clients. And then the other thing I would say, too, that I think is really important about the students that I see come to the schools um, from HBCU schools as well is that when they get to Goldman Sachs, they're able to find such deep connections and communities with each other um, and create cohorts. And then they give so much back. Like our HBCU alumni at Goldman, they're always constantly asking to come back to campus and find more students. So I think that pay it forward attitude is really important too. And I see a lot from these students as well. Tell me about what your vision is for the future of Goldman Sachs say that you know they didn't need a DEI officer <laughs> what would that look like um, and how are HBCUs a part of that yeah yeah it's hard to imagine a future I know most CDOs say they want to work themselves out of a job you know if I'm being honest I don't think that's ever going to happen like there's always going to be some disparity like if it's not across race or ethnicity it'll be socioeconomic status. If it's not that, it might be nationality. If it's not that, you know, it might be language barriers. So I, I just, as I would, I would love to be in some idyllic state where everybody is like holding hands, <laughs> you know, we're humans. Um, so I think we're going to be much better about closing inequity gaps. Um, but I don't think my, my job, you know, is going anywhere. Um, but in terms of the future, where I hope will be is two things I think I would like to see happen is one more investment in schools like HBCUs um, and not just during times of crisis. You know, there were a lot of individuals or companies writing checks post George Floyd. I would hope that it doesn't take the unfortunate murder of an individual for people to stay invested and giving money to these institutions that are severely underfunded is number one. That's what I hope for HBCUs. And then I think too, is that there is such momentum and representation of big institutions like Goldman 
is that we don't necessarily need like a market madness program. We should still be investing in the school and finding recruits, but it doesn't have to be so high profile. It just becomes the nature of business where we're just constantly getting the inflow of students from HBCUs that it becomes commonplace like it would any other uh, institution of higher learning. And what do you think it, it'll take to get there? I think it will take a couple of things. I think representation is so important. And so we've got a, a ton of analysts, at, if you think about like the pyramid structure, a ton of analysts and associates soon to be promoted to VPs. Like I said, we have a couple of managing directors and partners, but I think once you see that top of the pyramid really grow with HBCU talent and black talent, then I think it just becomes commonplace because the representation will be there. It won't be such a hard journey to get more people in the door and then more people promoted to a higher level. Yeah. So those are most of the questions that I have for you, but I always like to ask, is there anything that we didn't talk about that you think is really important to share either about Goldman or just about yourself and your own experience? Yeah, I think being open to, like I'm, I'm constantly telling people at Goldman Sachs to be open to different institutions, to come see campuses for themselves. You know, it was really hard during COVID to build connectivity. Um, and while certainly we're not out of the thick of it, you know, there is more opportunity for people to travel and to get to know students. And what I would ask of Howard students is the opposite, which is like be open to the possibilities and learning more about a place like Woolman, which is not necessarily um, just your first choice, but could it be your second choice? And so life is long, you know, there's obviously tons of opportunities come in, not just at the internship or campus level, um, but thinking about career pivots like I took, like nine years into my career being a lawyer, I decided I wanted to move into HR and I thought of Goldman Sachs. Um, and so um, I'm always gonna end with an ask um, because it's just my nature to do so, I give and I get. Um, which is, you know, as people think about the opportunities of where to work, you know, don't think just locally, just don't think about your major, think about long-term where you want to be. And I, I'm 100% confident, like, one day a future could be at a place like Wilbur Sachs. Thank you. Yeah, my pleasure. And that's all for me this week. Thanks again for tuning in to the Hilltalks podcast, your weekly roundup, Sincerely the Hilltop. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to everything that we talked about today. And until next time, I'm Olivia Green in truth and service.